All right. Matthew chapter 24, and I'm going to read verses 29 to 31. Matthew 24, 29 to 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we've had a sweet time already, and I pray that you would continue to bless the proclamation of your word. Lord, you know the heart of the preacher, and I pray that you would grant that we might see Christ today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We're all very familiar so far, or by this time familiar, with the questions that ignited this discourse, known as the Olivet Discourse, and the answer that our Lord has given so far, and I won't summarize very much of it other than to say this, and hopefully as I give you these little phrases, you'll remember exactly where they go in the discourse. They ask the questions, when... Will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus has answered, some things will happen, but don't be alarmed. Men will come, but don't be led astray. Jerusalem will be sacked. Maintain your discernment, and don't be led astray. Last week we saw, we could summarize it with this. They've asked, how will we know? And he's answered, so far, you'll know. And that's the point. You'll know. Don't be led astray because you'll know. That's what he's getting at. So then we come to verses 29 to 31, which are probably the most debated verses in this discourse. Here's the question. As we read these verses, do they refer to the very same events that have been under discussion this entire time in the discourse namely the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., or do they refer to the second coming of Christ at the end of the age or the end of time? That's the question. Now, as soon as I throw out that question, some of you are probably already second-guessing all of your skills as a Bible student because as I read them in your hearing, you just assumed there's no question. When we read the language here of what is obvious uh, cosmic cataclysm, we just assume this has got to be the second coming of Christ. Well, we read verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Compare that with Isaiah 
The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Isaiah 13, 13, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place. Very similar language. Except there the Lord is talking about the destruction of Babylon by the Medo-Persian Empire. In Isaiah 34, 4, All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall. There the reference is to God's coming in judgment upon Edom. Ezekiel 32, 7 and 8, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. There the reference is in God's judging Egypt. So you see, the language that we're reading about here in Matthew 24, 29 is used multiple places in prophetic literature to describe destruction and God coming in judgment upon political powers, empires. He's bringing them down. Okay, we come to verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is actually made up of a combination of two passages of Scripture from the Old Testament. First, Zechariah 12.10. We read these words, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This was a prophecy of the day of Pentecost. The Spirit was poured out upon the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the Jews. Remember when Peter preached, they were cut to the heart. And they said, what do we do? He proclaimed Christ to them. And it was as, as, for, it was as if for the first time ever, they saw the Christ placarded before their eyes. They saw Him for who He is. And they said, what do we do? They were cut to the heart. And Daniel chapter 7 is the other reference we've read many times. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, listen, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, you put these two references together there in, in Daniel, the reference to the, the return of Christ into the, the heavenlies, to His throne after His bodily ascension. He comes to the Ancient of Days, not from, but to, into the presence of the Father, and receives His kingdom. We put both of these references together, and that's what... Jesus is doing here, Pentecost, the ascension. We can picture in our minds, if you can picture a timeline, Christ ascends into the heavens and we read in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus has ascended and He has sent back down His Holy Spirit, the ascension leading to Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit. Remember what Peter said about the day of Pentecost, quoting from Joel chapter 2, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Peter says, this is what's happening today. 
the language of Christ ascending to His throne and then judgment coming upon Jerusalem by the means of tongues. The gift of tongues was a judgment upon the Jewish people. So you see the language of Matthew 24, especially 29 and 30 so far, is taken from the Old Testament that sort of points to New Testament events like the ascension, like Pentecost, Christ being enthroned as king and judgment coming upon Jerusalem. Here's the problem. John does the very same, same thing in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1.7, he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Now, I'm okay with an early date of the Revelation, but I don't believe John was on the island of Patmos before the ascension and before Pentecost. So apparently the combination of these verses that Jesus uses, especially verse 30, this combination doesn't have to only apply to those specific events. It can, be the, it can, be, it can apply to Pentecost, it can apply to the ascension, and it can also apply to the second coming. Verse 31, again, many commentators read this verse and they say He'll send out His angels. That's, the word's just messengers. He'll send out His messengers with a loud trumpet call. That trumpet call is gospel proclamation. The ingathering of the elect from all over the earth. And so if, if you read this text this way, then it does deal with the events immediately following the destruction of Jerusalem. In 29, reading prophetic language, Jerusalem is judged as a political power. In verse 30, Christ ascends to His heavenly throne, sends His Holy Spirit. And in verse 31, the gospel is sent forth to the nations. In other words, describing the entirety of the church age. Or, like we most, most of us probably assume, this section is dealing with the events following the entirety of the church age. That might be... Uh, described the entirety of the church age, described as days of tribulation, in which all of the world's political powers will be brought to nothing. The actual cosmos will be shaken, the, at the end of which Christ will return in power and glory with His holy angels, and He will gather His people from the four corners of the earth. The question is, which is it? Is it then or is it now? Do they refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., consummated consummating the judgment that began at Pentecost? Or do they refer to the second coming of Christ, consummating the judgment that began at Pentecost? My answer is yes. I'm going to go with both. I'm going to satisfy both sides of this debate and say yes. Remember the great shift that is taking place, the end of the Jewish age, the beginning of the church age. The work of the kingdom has been taken away from the nation of Israel, given to a people producing its fruits, that is the church. Jesus has been preaching about this throughout His entire ministry, and here He's emphasizing one empire is falling while another empire is rising. And this takes place beginning at the ascension and Pentecost and the destruction of Jerusalem, and it lasts all the way through the church age. Also remember... This shift, this redemptive historical shift, 
turns, I said, on many small hinges. It's a big door, but there are a lot of small hinges. All of these events, Pentecost was judgment. The destruction of Jerusalem was judgment. Pentecost was the establishment of the New Testament church. And yet there were believers before Pentecost. And the church went forth in power later to the Gentiles, or the gospel went forth. And so there are a lot of different events that don't just line out perfectly on a timeline. There is some overlap. The kingdom has been inaugurated, the church has been established, and yet the church is still being built into a holy temple. The kingdom of God is still growing like a mustard seed, a growth that will not be completed until the end of the age. And so the focus, I believe, in these verses is turning away from what's coming to an end, the Jewish age, and towards what's being set up, the kingdom of Christ, the church age, which will culminate in the return of Christ for His bride. Although I don't think the point here is to give a, a doctoral dissertation on the timeline of, the, uh, the la of last things or the, uh, what's going to happen at the end of the world. I think the point in these three verses is to say with more detail what He began to say in verses 25 through 28 we saw last week. He said... If we begin at verse 15, he describes the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem. And, and even after that, he says, Then if anyone says to you, even while these events are happening and, and this destruction takes place, still don't believe anyone who says they are the Christ. Here he's emphasizing that. The negative being, don't believe anyone, anyone that says that. The positive being, you're going to know it when I come. You're going to know it like lightning, like vultures. It's not going to be in a corner. Everybody's going to know it. And here, it seems he's driving that point even further to let them know everybody's going to know what's happening. In other words, we don't need to speculate. Now, that being said by way of introduction, we ended last week with this application. We need to let the Word of God influence our understanding of Jesus Christ and of His power and of His glory. These verses do that. They teach us about His power and His glory. And that's what I want to do. I want to step away from the common obsession with end times events and what's it going to be like and what's going to happen, questions of when and where and who. And I just want to focus on the King of the Ages. That's what I want to do in preaching this text. And if you want to go to the commentators and read all of the various views on these verses, you can. But I think the, the, the point remains the same in all of them. The commonwealth of Israel that existed as a type and shadow of the church is coming to an end. And the fulfillment is here. The kingdom of Christ is being set up. The kingdom of Christ is a spiritual kingdom. It is a spiritual dominion over His people. And the spiritual dominion is nothing more and nothing less than Christ in the heart. Taking dominion over the heart. Ruling over the throne of a heart. Christ is the very essence of His kingdom. So to understand the kingdom, we have to understand the king. And when we understand the king, we'll understand the kingdom. And we won't have to sit around all day twiddling our thumbs trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back. So that's what I want to do. We see first in these verses that our Lord Jesus Christ is a conquering king. A conquering king. Verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
This is the typical language of God coming in judgment upon the kingdoms of men. Political conquest had already begun with the nation of Israel and now it's going to spread throughout the whole earth. Every other world power will be conquered by King Jesus. We read in Daniel 2.35, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, these were representative of empires, kingdoms, altogether were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. We learned several weeks ago, what is that mountain? That's Mount Zion. The mountain of God, the church. Daniel 2.44 And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. When did that happen? At the end of time? No, he says, in the days of those kings. It's already happening. Daniel 7 and verse 18. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Daniel 7, 27, The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey Him. When's that going to happen? That followed immediately after the vision of the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. In other words, it's already here. It's happening. What we read here is already taking place. For God has set His King on His holy hill, on Mount Zion. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Christ ascends to the heavens, and the Father says, Have a seat, Son, while we take care of all of your enemies. And none of these are merely future realities. They're present realities, but they are working toward a climactic end. Hebrews 2.8 says, Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. Revelation 11.15 the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Christ is a conquering King, and He will conquer every nation. In the incarnation, throughout His earthly life, He was the suffering servant. He was debased, He was despised, He was scorned, He was spoken against, He was mocked, He was ridiculed. And he could truly say that in his first coming, he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, through his suffering, might be saved. But then he went to the cross. And it's at the cross where he was exalted. He was literally lifted physically above all of those who had mocked him, even his murderers. We could think of it, we could think of Golgotha as the marble staircase to Christ's enthronement. You remember Solomon had lions lining his staircase up to his enthronement. The Lord Jesus had weeping Israelite women lining the staircase to his enthronement on the cross. And since that day, the ruler of this world has been cast out and Jesus is drawing all men to himself, both Jews and Gentiles. 
He didn't even wait until his death before he snagged the dying thief. They couldn't even get his body off of the cross before he laid hold, he conquered the soul of the Roman soldier because he's a conquering king. He takes souls for himself. In Haggai chapter 2, describing what I believe is the New Testament church, we read these words, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Right now the Holy Spirit is gathering people from every nation, precious stones from every nation, building this great end times temple which is the church of the living God. Jerusalem fell. The Roman Empire fell. Ever since then, the kingdoms of men have risen and they have fallen. And yet we're here as a testimony that the kingdom of Christ has not fallen because he's a conquering king. Throughout history, Christ has conquered and kingdoms have fallen. Sometimes a political power, sometimes it's a nation, sometimes it's a town, sometimes it's a family, sometimes it's one single rebel heart, but he's conquering. He says, I'll take that, that's mine. And when it's all said and done, all of the kingdoms of men will be no more. When's the last time he tried to book a flight to Babylon or Sodom? They're gone. And it's, it's all going to be that way. America will fall. Russia will fall. North Korea will fall. China will fall. Even the most mighty of the world powers will fall. But Christ's kingdom will not fall because He lives to conquer. He conquers kingdoms. So what He's saying to His disciples here is, Men, Jerusalem's going to fall. All of the world powers are going to fall. But the kingdom of God is firmly established. It's here to stay. In Hebrews 12 26 to 28, it says, He has promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. All of the kingdoms of men will fall, and yet the, the kingdom of Christ cannot be shaken. That's the kingdom we have received. We are citizens of that kingdom. And when Christ returns, we know that the actual created order is going to be reduced to chaos and regenerated for the people of God. 2 Peter 3, 10-13, you can read there. Heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. Heavenly bodies will melt that's the second coming of Christ. But we don't think of the second coming of Christ as an event all its own. The second coming is merely the consummation of what He's already begun. To the downfall of all of the kingdoms of men and the establishment of the kingdom of Christ has already begun. He's just going to come at the end to finish it. He's a conquering king and He will come to conquer. Secondly, we see from these verses that He is an undeniable king. An undeniable king. Verse 30 says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of man, of man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Again, Jesus has taken a reference from Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12. He's 
put them together. The reference from Zechariah, he actually expands from the inhabitants of Jerusalem to all the tribes of the earth. Now, if you read commentators, some of them will say all of the tribes of the earth could be translated all the tribes of the land. They're therefore applying it again just to the destruction of Jerusalem. It could, also be, it could also be translated all the tribes of the dirt and all the tribes of the ground. So, and nobody's going with those, in, those uh, interpretations. We have to be careful with semantic ranges. A word, a word in Greek, we could say, well, it means, it could mean this or this or this or this or this. So it means all of them. No, it doesn't mean all of them. You have to use the context to understand what's being spoken of here. All the tribes of the earth. Notice the language of Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. I take that to be a reference to the second coming when the, when the harvest takes place. Matthew 16, 27, and 28. The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. I take that to be the second coming. And then he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. I take that to be a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem and the exaltation of Christ. In other words, it's one elongated, stretched out event over human history, especially the church age. Christ's coming in judgment upon Jerusalem was just a small glimpse of the greater judgment. So we read in the New Testament that even now the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We're not waiting for it. It's already revealed. This is the judgment that Christ came into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. It's already happening, you see. Matthew 25, 31 and 32, and this is important because it's in the same discourse. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Again, I believe a reference to the second coming, the final judgment. The second coming is not an isolated event. It is the consummation of what began at Pentecost through the destruction of Jerusalem and continues to this very day. We, we often think of the church this way. You can think of the judgment this way as well. A Jewish wedding. There would be the betrothal period, contractual agreement, contracts are signed, husband and wife, no consummation. That period where they are called husband and wife, wherein to separate, they would have to file for a public divorce, could last up to a year or more until they finally came together and consummated the marriage. That's how it is with the church. Christ has betrothed His beloved, and someday He will return and take us to Himself. And the same is happening with the judgment. He's already began to judge. He's still judging, and He will come back again to judge. And when He comes, He will come as an undeniable King. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming. When Christ returns, contrary to left-behind novels and secret rapture nonsense, when He returns, everybody's going to know it. Amen. Nobody's going to be scratching their head wondering what's happening. When He comes, everybody's going to know it. The world will know that He's here. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. 
That's not quiet. That's not secret. The dead in Christ will rise first. That's not a secret. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Everybody's going to know it. They're going to know who He is when He comes, and they're going to know that they are in trouble. When He returns, they're going to know it immediately. Revelation 6, 15 to 17, The kings of the earth... The great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? When He comes, they're going to know it. They're going to know who He is. They're going to see themselves for who they are, and they are going to know that they're in trouble. And they're going to see His power and His glory and they will understand in that moment that He has come on an assignment. Revelation 19, a passage hopefully we know very well. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on His head are many diadems And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on their white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. When he comes, everybody's going to know. His people are going to rejoice. His enemies are going to flee from his presence. They would rather be crushed to death by the rocks than stand before this king. Notice it's not death that they're afraid of. It's the wrath of the Lamb. They don't want to be in his presence. Anything to get me away from that Lamb. The undeniable, undisputable King of Kings is going to return and nobody's going to be confused about what's happening. Now, if you've grown up in these Darbyist uh, circles, you've probably laid asleep at night wondering, what if the rapture happens? What if I get up and I'm walking around the house in the morning and everybody's clothes are laying around and, nobody, and I'm, I'm afraid and I'm wondering, has the rapture taken place? And I don't know what's happening. That's why we should get our teaching from Scripture and not novels. Come to Him while He's still offering terms of peace. Don't think about a future day. Well, let's just wait and see if that happens and then hopefully... No, come to Him now. Now's the time. Because when He comes then, you're either going to rejoice or you're going to flee for your life, but you're not going to get a second chance. We also see in verse 31 that our Lord Jesus is an accomplished King. An accomplished King. He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now again, we we compare this language with Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man will send His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. 
So you see, when a king leads his, his army to victory, he revels in the spoils of that victory. Where the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom and the spoils are the souls of the redeemed, it is Christ who reaps the reward for His sufferings by gathering the redeemed from every corner of the earth. Isaiah said, Out of the anguish of His soul He shall see and be satisfied. When He looked at the cross, He knew it's, it's already done. It's, the work is accomplished. He was satisfied with the spoils. We know that angels are the most mighty of all created beings. One of them killed 185,000 Assyrians. They stand waiting at a moment's notice to answer the commands of Christ. Someday He will give that command and they will fall off the edge of heaven and they will come and they will reap the harvest. They will gather His spoil. Spoil from every tribe, every nation under heaven. The treasures of all nations shall come in, Haggai said. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Those gathered, says they will gather His elect. Those chosen by the Father in Christ before the foundation of the world. Those whom the Father gave to the Son. Those for whom the Son entered into eternity and suffered as a substitute, those people will be gathered. You and I, if you are a Christian, on that day will be gathered to meet the conquering, undeniable, accomplished King. And when He comes, we're going to be like Him because we're going to see Him as He is. These mortal bodies will put on immortality. As Paul said, thus we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I think that's what he's doing here with the disciples. He's encouraging them. Kingdoms are going to crumble. I'm going to come. I'm going to come for my people. This should encourage us if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, it should scare the living daylights out of you. And you should pray that it doesn't happen now before it's too late. Now, all of these truths of his conquest, his undeniableness, his accomplishments, all of this we could, we could draw straight from Psalm 2 if we wanted to. The response that's commanded by David is stated in Psalm 2.12. In light of all of these things, God sets His Son. He, he gives the Son the nations. The Son will come and break the nations with a rod of iron. The response is, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. You see, in the ancient world, one would signify their submission, their respect, their honor, their loyalty for a king by bowing and by giving him a kiss. Maybe on the signet ring, maybe on the hand, maybe on the cheek, maybe even on the feet. But when they did this, it was always a sign that I'm not an enemy, I'm a friend. I bow to you, I submit to you. So here's the application. Christ is conquering king. Christ is undeniable king. Christ is accomplished king. Therefore, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. Lay down your weaponry. Lay down your banner. Abandon your cause and seek refuge in Christ. We're all by nature enemies of God. Every one of us by nature. You might be here and you're still an enemy of God. You're still at enmity with God. You fight against God and His Word and His Christ at every turn, everywhere the Word of God demands that you obey in some form or fashion, you fight against it. Christ 
has come to conquer rebels like you. And when he conquers, he leaves destruction and he takes spoils. The question is not, will there be destruction and will there be spoils? The question is, which will you be? Will you be destruction or will you be the spoils of his victory? You continue to fight against him and you will be destroyed with an everlasting destruction. But if you lay down your artillery, kiss the sun, your soul will be taken as spoils into everlasting joy. Stop fighting and surrender. Maybe you can't bow. You can't honor the sun because that banner you're still carrying is, is, is etched with your own insignia, your own face. You're waving the banner of self. Self-pleasure, self-fulfillment, personal comfort, personal ease, delight. Everything you do in life is, is in order to be more happy, more satisfied, more fulfilled in your fleshly desires. You see, when it's all said and done, there's only going to be one banner flying, and that's going to be the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom. You might think that waving the flag of self-promotion, lifting high that banner with your face on it, your needs, your emotions, your happiness, lifting that banner high will give you satisfaction. But surely you can tell if you're honest with yourself, it's never enough. It will never be enough. What you really hope for as you try to lift your banner up high, and you realize everyone around you is also lifting up their banner. Nobody can be exalted above anybody because we're all clamoring for the, 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 the spot of preeminence. What you really want is for everybody else to lay down theirs and stand on each other's shoulders to lift high yours. It's never going to happen because they're all hoping the same thing from you. Kiss the sun. Stop fighting your own fight. Stop waving your own banner. Lay down your banner. Take up His banner. That's the only way true joy is ever going to be found, is by waving the banner of King Jesus. Or maybe you won't admit that you're waving your own banner because you actually think in your mind that you're selfless. You don't feel like you're living for yourself because you're living for something besides yourself. You have another cause it's not self. The problem is it's not Christ either. So what are you fighting for? What are you living for? What's your cause? What's your mission in life? What Honestly, what receives the most affections? What receives the most of your thought life? The most of your emotional investments? What is the great endeavor that you're after that you have to accomplish? The great purpose that you're championing? What is it? Think about it. What am I living for? Everybody around you already knows it. We can tell by the way you talk, the way you live and spend. Everybody knows what your cause is. The, the problem is we have to come to terms with what our cause is. You have to admit what your cause is. Maybe it's family. It's very easy for young families to be so filled with the joy of family life, of children, of marriage, that that becomes the one great cause, family. Everything's family. We champion the cause of family night, family day, family time. Pour everything we have into making our families happy, family time easy. Don't ever say anything that would, make, that would bring a, a spirit of sobriety into the, into the household. Let's just keep everything light and frivolous and fun. 
Maybe it's career. Again, it's easy for young families to see the great possibilities on the horizon for the family. If dad could just nail down the career that just so happens to fulfill every desire of his heart and also provide financial means for the family. And so we begin to champion the cause of career and success and achievement. And before we know it, we're caught up in that whirlwind of career, success, happiness. What kingdom are you building? Think about it. Honestly, your blood, your sweat, your tears, your dollars, your prayers, your worries. What kingdom are they going out for? It's either yours or Christ's. Think about it. Honestly, can you say, I'm, I'm, I'm going through my week. I'm looking at my expenditures. I'm looking at my time. I'm, I'm analyzing my whole life. And I can say, I'm living for the kingdom. I'm a kingdom person. I'm a citizen of the kingdom, living and fighting for the kingdom. Or would you have to say, well, if I put it all together, I'm living for me, my cause, myself, my mission. You see, even the good things God has given to us have a tendency to, to rise to the top and we begin to make this specific cause, that specific cause, the thing that we're working for rather than Christ's kingdom. And any kingdom set up other than Christ's kingdom will crumble. It will all end in failure. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. You want to build a happy and healthy family? If you're building by yourself, it's going to be worthless. It will crumble. You want a happy family or, or a, a family that will last? Then do everything in your power to make that family a kingdom-minded family. Men, you want what's best for your wife? Show her. Don't say it. Stop saying it. Show her that your job and your hobbies are not as important to you as Christ is. Show her that she is not as important to you as Christ is. If you want what's best for your children, treat them like disciples of Christ. Show them through how you spend your time, your money, your conversations, through your daily schedule, show them we're citizens of another kingdom, kids. Christ's kingdom is triumphant. Christ is worthy of our lives. Teach your children true and lasting joy is not found in toys and trips, in education, in a spouse, in a career. It'll never be found in anything other than giving themselves to Christ's kingdom. Just all out everything for the kingdom of Christ. That's where joy is going to be found. Do that, kids, and you'll have a long life. Maybe it's 20 years. Maybe it's 30 years. But 20 years living for the kingdom of Christ is a lot longer than 80 years living for yourself. Live for the, live for the Lord. Lay down your cause. Kiss the Son. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added. All these other things. Now perhaps you think you come to the Son now, if I come to Him now, and I want to kiss the Son now, after my years of rebellion and treason, He's not going to receive me peacefully. I mean, I know how I've lived. Like David, when the young man came to him to let him know Saul had died. And he, he bowed in honor of King David. Saul's dead. Well, how'd he die? Well, he asked me to kill him, so I killed him. And David had him killed right then. He was not received peacefully. Maybe that's how you think it's going to be. You come to Christ. I've been a, re I've been a rebel. I've, been, uh, I've committed treason against His kingdom. If I come into His presence, He's just going to kill me in a moment. Listen, you're already a rebel against God. You're already 
a rebel against God. You're already under the wrath of God. The only way to safety and peace is not to retreat. It's not to keep fighting. Psalm 2.12 says, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Kiss the Son, take refuge in the Son. The way to peace is not to flee the battle, but to come over to the winning side. The wrath of God abides upon those who will not submit to the Son, but the Son Himself is the refuge from that recompense. The Son is the battle shield. The Son is the strong tower. Christ is the refuge. In the cross of Christ, not only was Satan defeated, but the wrath of God was absorbed in his body. Kiss the Son, seek refuge in the Son. Again, the question is not who's going to be victorious in the end. The question is which side are you going to be on when he comes in victory? He's coming, conquering, and making war. Which side are you going to be on? Will you rejoice at his coming or are you going to be one of those who's screaming at the rocks to crush you so that you don't have to face that lamb? What was the great sign of Christ's victory? How do we know he won? Look at the cross. The cross was the sign of victory. Jesus said in John 12, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. And he was speaking of the crucifixion, the, the form in which he would be killed, where he would be lifted up on a cross above everybody else. And he says, when that happens, when I'm hanging on that cross from that point on, I'm going to draw the nations to myself, all people. At the cross, Christ won the victory. And now he draws, through the preaching of the gospel, he draws men from every wind of heaven, from the four corners of the earth, to his kingdom, to his church. At the cross is where it started. The Lord's Supper reminds us of that victory. We think on the cross. The Lord's Supper specifically points us to the cross. And we remember his body broken. We remember his blood shed. And we remember, we're reminded at the Lord's Supper, victory's already been won. It's already done. Yeah, it was a victory through death, but it was a victory nonetheless. That's how this kingdom works. So take a couple minutes, consider Christ, the conquering king, the undeniable king, the accomplished king, and then we'll come to his table.